No, it, this isn't going to be till the end. So, no video till the end. So. Okay, so thanks to everybody for coming. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce William Flesh. Um, I'm not quite sure what to say. I mean, one thing I could say is that he's been a good friend of mine for over 30 years, so maybe I'm biased in singing his praises, but you all judge on the basis of the talk. No, don't. Um, judge on the basis of the intro. Okay, basic, <laughs> just the basic intro. Okay, I'm not going to read all the biographical information, but um, basically I think, you know, the question of how to connect humanistic studies, particularly literary studies, with the findings of evolutionary bi biology has been long been a vexing problem. The first person from the literature side to really ask this question was the great literary critic Morris Peckham in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, in, in recent years, there's been a number of works of so-called literary Darwinism, which to my mind have been very reductive and very painfully bad. That's an unsolicited opinion. Um, it seems to me that what William is doing is, is rethinking everything from the ground up, and I really think, at least from my reading in the field, he's the first person since Morse Peckham in the literary field to really give an intelligent and non-reductive approach to the question of how can we bring evolutionary theory to bear on literature and culture. So please welcome William Flesch. Thank you. Um, I have some handouts that we almost certainly won't look at, but if you get bored, um, <laughs> you have the handouts. Um, partly, they, they're handouts from, from um, a version of um, an earlier presentation that I thought I was going to do, which was more designed for people who are, who are wholly or largely in literature. But I understand that the English department here is doing a couple of searches, and um, you have talk burnout, which I just don't understand. <laughs> um, but, but I guess, I guess, maybe I do understand it. Um, so what I'm actually going to do today is the first time I'm presenting some ideas um, that I have that follow the argument that I made in comeuppance, which I know at least two of you have read, um, which is sort of probably half the people in the world who've read it are now in this room. Um, and um, so they're, they're, this is what I'm working on now and thinking about hard now. And it's, it's um, so I'm not going to, I'm going to start by, by repeating a little bit the argument of comeuppance in order to, to um, uh, get to beyond it, or maybe not beyond it, but I hope beyond it, um, in what follows. Um, there's a fun part of this for sure, which is um, what the uh, video is going to be, which will um, basically be the last part of the talk, is I'm going to show a few clips from a couple of game shows. Um, and uh, the clips are fun, and I hope they'll be either illustrative or provocative or both. Um, of some of the issues that I want to talk about now. Um, so um, I'll probably refer a little bit to the long scene from Antony and Cleopatra, which is on um, the handout. It's a single sheet, um, Xerox front and back. I'll probably refer a little bit to that, but um, you don't have to find your way around it. I'll just um, mention a couple of interesting lines in it. Um, the title of this talk is, um, I think it's what's What's wrong with literary Darwinism and how to fix it? Um, and so what I, basically what I want to say is wrong with it, I spent a lot of time thinking about what's wrong with it, um, is, a, is that literary Darwinism, the way it's mainly practiced and mainly published these days, um, is an argument for literature as an adaptation 
um, that developed in um, the, the, the time when all adapt the, the magical um, time in the ancient past when all adaptations developed. And um, the idea would be um, everything is an adaptation. Um, there is a thing called literature, therefore it's an adaptation, and we should figure out what it's an adaptation for. Um, and the basic arguments that literary Darwinists make tend to see it as an adaptation either, well, in one way or another for the sharing of information. Um, that is that somehow, I'm going to be talking about fiction today um, and, and primarily, so um, that's a special case of literature if there is such a thing as literature. Um, it's a reasonable special case because fiction does tend to use all the resources that other forms of literature um, tend to use. Um, so the idea would be fiction might be a very, very um, um, elegant and information-laden and rich way of, um, of um, transferring information from someone who knows how the world works to someone who needs to learn how the world works. Um, it might also be these things aren't inconsistent with each other, um, that fiction is a good way of practicing um, for real-life events, that fiction has um, something like the um, status of play and that you learn how to handle serious things by, um, by practicing them, thinking them through, fantasizing them um, in fiction, seeing in fictional um, scenarios the, how, what the outcomes of various kinds of, of um, fictional choices are and so on. It's sort of the um, how Kirk defeats the Federation in the Star Trek movies when he's being tested in the impossible test. And the idea of an impossible test is so that he should learn what to do in impossible situations. Um, so that's a kind of standard um, literary Darwinist view of fiction. Um, another view, which I'm in somewhat more sympathy with, except that I think it puts the cart before the horse, is the view that um, fiction is, um, an, is a, um, helps practice and um, intensify our capacities for empathy. Um, so that humans as social beings, which we are and which is, which is um, clearly one of the most important things um, to consider as a background for thinking about how fiction works, um, as, as extraordinarily social beings, um, empathy and sympathy um, are crucial to the way we interact with each other and the way in particular we cooperate with each other. Um, we, humans are cooperative with non-kin in unprecedented ways um, in, in um, bio biological um, uh, kingdoms. And um, the practice of empathy that, that fictional caring would make possible um, is something that could then be brought um, into more serious contexts and we would be ready for it. I think there's probably something to that, but fiction seems a very, very, very um, elaborate way of getting us to practice things that might be practiced a lot more easily and a lot more efficiently in other ways. Um, nevertheless, I do think there's something to it. Um, what I think, though, is that, um, that that's, as I say, putting the cart before the horse because I think that fiction relies on um, capacities for empathy that evolved one way or another in um, what's called and, and what um, I, I um, um, uh, accept as um, scenarios for the evolution of cooperation. And I think that, um, in fact, what fiction can do um, is give you some insight 
into some of the details um, about the evolution of cooperation, can give you some evidence on some sides of debates about how cooperation evolved. Um, but it's um, that fiction um, allows you to get insight into human cooperation rather than being designed by evolution um, to, to um, intensify cooperation. Um, so I don't want to say, generally there, there are two views of um, uh, literature under, uh, that Darwinians have, and one is the um, literary Darwinism will explain all of literature view, which I don't um, agree with, and the other is the literature is mental cheesecake view, which is the Steven Pinker view, which is there's a lot of stuff that we do, and in order to do it, there are certain weird things that we'll also um, tend to find ourselves doing, um, like eating cheesecake because um, sugar and um, fat are really good for nutrition, and cheesecake is just um, um, the, the uh, harmful excess of something that is um, helpful under, um, uh, under, the envi under environments of evolutionary adaptation. Um, I don't think either of those is true. Um, what I want to say and what I think is that literature um, and the, the social negotiations, the kinds of things that um, happen um, in the creation of literature and fiction, in the consumption of literature and fiction, in the scenes and um, social settings where, um, where fictional events are, um, are presented are all parts of a larger cooperative social structure among human beings. And um, so it's neither a spandrel nor a particular adaptation but it's a high point in a topography of adaptations, let's say, one of many high points, not almost certainly not the highest, but a very interesting high point. So just to, uh, what I want to do is, as quickly as I can, sum up um, the, what, what I say, the general argument of, of comeuppance um, in order to get a little bit farther um, today. So, the basic idea is that, the, that cooperation is a really hard thing um, to get going with um, by itself. It's very hard for a system of agents acting on their own behalf, which is what Darwinian theory, um, the whole idea of the selfish gene or the selfish organism, um, um, thinks about. It's very hard to see how agents um, acting um, to maximize their own benefits, um, usually defined as reproductive success, um, would, could achieve stable cooperative um, um, relationships with those they're competing with. Um, if nature is competition for resources and competition for reproductive success, um, where do you get um, cooperation from when in you would expect um, that defectors in most plausible situations, um, people who cheat would do better than people who don't cheat but who are honest. And um, a lot of thinking went into the evolution of cooperation over the last 20 or 25 years or so. Um, and a simple um, way of describing how cooperation could develop among non-kin. Cooperation among ants is not a problem um, because um, ants share 75% of their genes with their sisters. 
Um, but cooperation uh, and all the, all the ants, or most of the ants in an ant colony, are sisters. Um, cooperation among non-kin um, is a much harder thing to understand because um, helping someone who's not particularly related to you reproduce, um, when it costs you resources to do it, um, doesn't help you reproduce, and the person who is not your kin um, and whom, whom you're helping more, presumably, than she's helping you, um, will have greater reproductive success than you are, and you will, you and your offspring will, in the long run, be weeded out. Um, that's the puzzle. Um, so the way cooperation could be self-sustaining, this isn't how it evolves, but how once it evolves, it could stay evolved, um, is through the notion of altruistic punishment. Um, so the idea is that um, if non-cooperators are punished for not cooperating, um, if the fact that you're not a cooperator means that you lose points in the game of reproductive success, then cooperation will be um, a, a more winning strategy than not cooperating. Um, but the problem is, how, does, how, how will it be the case that you would lose points for not cooperating? Um, and one way to make it the case that you would lose points for not cooperating is if um, there were a general or at least a strong coercive um, expectation that non-cooperation would get you into trouble. Um, in which case um, you would tend to cooperate. So where would this idea that not cooperating would get you into trouble come from? Well, if there are people, and I'm going to keep talking about people because this really happens um, in human beings much more, or one or two or three orders of magnitude more than in any other species. It's not unheard of in other species, um, but it's really a human um, um, dynamic that we're talking about here. If there are people who go around um, punishing non-cooperators, punishing defectors, not, and this is very common to, for someone or some organism to punish um, an organism that it is um, involved in some venture with if that organism defects from the original organism. That is, if, um, if a fig and a moth, since this just came out, um, it's very interesting. If a fig and a moth have a synergistic relationship where, the, where the, fig is, the fig tree is helping the moth and the moth tree is helping the fig tree. Uh, maybe it's, you're right, it is a wasp. I think there's a moth too, though, um, but I might be confusing things. Um, so if, so the, fig, the fig and the wasp are, um, are working together um, but then the wasp starts defecting. Um, for the fig to punish the wasp that's not pulling her weight, um, is, that's not so surprising. Um, and that's often been analyzed as tit-for-tat interactions. Um, what would be surprising is if some other fig um, saw the wasp defecting from the first fig, some unrelated fig saw the wasp defecting from the first fig, and got angry in some way or other, and found some way to punish the wasp. Um, but that's what humans do. That is, what, what humans um, tend to do, and this is where the idea of altruistic punishment comes from, is humans tend to get outraged when they see defection, even if they are not themselves the 
the objects of that defection. Even if they lose nothing by it, um, humans tend to intervene. Um, that intervention may be very dangerous. That is, you may see someone getting mugged, and you may rush in to try to um, save the person who's getting mugged. Or it can be relatively, um, let's, let's just say, um, garden variety, which is um, that you're shocked at what you see, or you turn on the 10 o'clock news because um, you just want to see what outrageous things are happening. But all those things, um, which are, which are in, in some ways pleasurable, um, people take pleasure in being outraged. Um, look at the Tea Party, for example. Um, the, the, the fact that they're pleasurable is what needs explaining. Um, that is, why do we take pleasure in feeling anger at people who are um, cheating other people? Why is outrage such a universal human emotion? Um, because there are costs to any emotion. Um, costs in what you're spending your time doing, costs in what you're thinking about, um, costs in um, whether you're um, busy going out making a living yourself, um, costs in watching commercials on the 10 o'clock news. Um, and so the question is why, why are those costs paid? Um, humans do pay those costs and we take pleasure in paying those costs. Um, but the, the fact that we take pleasure um, is um, the evolution of that pleasure, the incentive to outrage, um, is what a theory of altruistic punishment um, tries to explain. Um, and the basic idea which I rely on in comeuppance is something like this, that being an altruistic punisher um, from the minor version of um, altruistic outrage to the major version of intervening to stop a murder or a mugging or some terrible thing that's happening, um, that being an altruistic punisher is um, what is called a costly signal. That is, an altruistic punishment is something like um, one of many um, but a major one of the many human versions of the peacock's tail. Um, so the reason um, this goes all the way back to Darwin, who asked the question, why do peacocks have those ridiculous tails? Um, the general answer to the question of the peacock's tail, because, a pe because um, the tail of a peacock is not good for the peacock. Um, peacocks get caught in underbrush um, where predators can get them. Um, they can't move around well um, with their tails, and they're also highly visible. So the question is, why did um, peacocks evolve their tails? Um, and there are many, many, there are many, many versions of things like the peacock's tail. Um, the answer tends to be that the peacock's tail um, is something which shows what the peacock can afford. So the more lavish the tail, the fitter the peacock who can survive the lavishness of his own tail must be. So what a peacock's tail is, is what's called a costly signal, um, a signal that you can only make if you can afford it. And if you can afford to make that signal, um, then you are advertising your own fitness and your own desirability as a mate. Um, because in sexual reproduction, sexual selection means that um, your mate is the person whom your genes have to rely on 
to reproduce. That is, your offspring is going to have, is going to have half your genes but half their genes. And um, your genes are most likely to survive down the generations if they're paired with genes that are likely to survive. So a peacock that shows a dazzling tail um, is showing that it can survive the stupidity of its dazzling tail, which means that it's very fit, um, which means that your genes want to hang out with its genes um, and will do so in your offspring. But there's a further aspect to this, which is a kind of self-sustaining aspect to it, which is the very fact that you're attracted to the peacock is evidence, and this is um, where I'm going to start, this is what I'm going to start talking about um, in a minute that goes beyond um, the material in comeuppance, um, but it's the fact that you're attracted to the peacock counts as evidence that other peahens are also attracted to this. You look at your own preferences not only as something that you note, obviously peahens aren't thinking this out, but but the game of reproduction that they're playing is structured on um, the form of this consideration. Um, so it's not only are you noting your own attraction, but you are also taking your attraction as evidence for what other peahens will be attracted to. And in the next generation, what you're hoping is that your peacock offspring um, will be attractive just as the peacock who helps you to have this offspring is attractive and that your offspring will then be attractive to, um, to the next generation of peahens. Um, so the um, sexual selection not only looks to some absolute idea of um, fitness, that is, I could afford this stupid tail, so um, I must be very fit. But also, the fact that other peahens think and can recognize this tail as a marker of fitness means that you will want your offspring to be able to produce similar tails. And at that point, it's not an absolute, it's both an absolute marker of fitness, but also. Um, something that's established as recognized as a marker of fitness. When there could be many markers of fitness, but if the others aren't recognized, the fact that they're markers of fitness won't matter. Um, and so there are, two, um, there are two things that then kind of build on each other. This um, got called by the person who first analyzed it, um, runaway sexual selection. Um, the fact that, um, that it is a marker of fitness, but the fact also that it's recognized as a marker of fitness. Um, this is very familiar to us from how stock markets work. There are people who buy stocks for um, the fundamentals of the stock, and there are people who buy stocks because they think other people are going to buy those stocks. Um, buying stock in a peacock is like buying stock in a bubble, or it risks being like buying stock in a bubble. Um, if that's true, and if um, the idea of something which is, strictly speaking, counter-utilitarian for, um, uh, for, for the peacock or for the displayer of a costly signal 
nevertheless is understood as a costly signal, um, then costly signaling um, is a surprising and at first somewhat counterintuitive way um, to achieve reproductive success. The idea is that altruistic punishment among humans is a costly signal. That is, that those who engage in altruistic punishment are felt to be particularly attractive. And that one reason that um, they're felt to be particularly attractive is because um, we are particularly tuned to seeing altruistic punishment as a marker of fitness and particularly desire that our own offspring should have an optimal amount of a tendency towards altruistic punishment. So that we tend to admire altruistic punishers, the very admiration that we have towards altru for altruistic punishers um, is an admiration um, that we seek to, in one way or another, um, um, piggyback on. Um, and it's also an admiration that um, has the lovely effect of um, demonstrating our own altruism, because if you select an altruistic punisher as a mate, um, what you're essentially saying is, I'm not taking the safest person I could take, the person who is most prudent and careful about um, um, their own reproductive success, but I'm taking a little bit of a chance. Um, and so all of this, I hope, starts sounding like the kinds of things um, emotional and judge, uh, emotionally judgmental or, or judgmentally emotional things um, that we um, feel in certain kinds of fiction. That is, um, heroes in fiction tend to be altruistic punishers. Um, the figures that they tend to punish, the villains, um, tend to be um, defectors, um, usually defectors who think they're going to get away with it. And one of the anticipatory pleasures that we feel in fiction, um, I'm, I'm willing to make the strong claim that this is true of almost all fiction that's, that's um, engaging um, through its plot. Um, but I don't have to make that claim. I just, right now, all I need to say is that this happens a lot in fiction. Um, and what we tend to do under those circumstances um, is to um, cheer for the hero who's going to make the villain who's cheated some innocent get his comeuppance. And um, we feel good cheering for the hero, um, even though plots tend to be arranged. So we think that this is a risk, that the hero is a risky person to, che to cheer for. That is, um, in, in movies, there's, in movie screenplays, in American movie screenplays, um, there's a point in the screenplay which is technically called the lost point. Um, and the lost point is when the main, as uh, movie makers call the protagonist, um, gets to a point where it looks like it's utterly impossible for him or her to do the task that the plot of the movie um, has suggested that they will try to do. Um, so if you're still cheering for the hero at the lost point, if, you, if somehow your emotional involvement in the story that you're watching is something like, um, there's no way out for this person, and yet I still cheer for them, um, you are both attracted 
by the very costly signaling that the story is showing you, um, showing them involved in. Um, and you yourself are doing a kind of costly signaling by continuing to root for them, um, even when it, when it looks impossible for them to win. Um, obviously, in Hollywood movies, which you know will end happily, um, it's not that hard to root for um, Daniel Craig as James Bond or, or something. Um, but the fact that it's not that hard isn't what's of interest here. It's the fact that plots expect um, and that we are somehow constructed so that we will root for underdogs um, under situations where it would be rational to give up on the underdog. And you can feel this, um, I think, if you look at the overlap between the way sport, sports, um, sporting events work and the way plots work. Um, you know, just think of the last Super Bowl, um, which makes a great story. Um, and the great story is, um, you know, the Colts were favorites and then they were ahead and then it looked like um, the Saints were going to catch up, but then um, they screwed up and they go into the second half and it all looks over and then an onside kick and um, the whole story, the whole, um, and all, all sporting events um, where your team wins will tend to be told like Hollywood action movies. Um, and but you'll only tell them if it looks like there's no way your team could have won. Um, Ralph Branca is pitching with two outs in the ninth, and here's Bobby Thompson, and what's he done lately? Um, and of course, that's the story that everyone knows best from the history of baseball is the, is the um, shot her ground the world. Um, and um, that's a story about those who are rooting for the giants keeping the faith despite the cost of keeping the faith and then getting rewarded for keeping the faith. So that's a story which is essentially in its outline, in its, in its schema, the story of altruistic punishment. And so what I suggest in comeuppance is that that gives you a very basic template for um, the very basic things that go on in fiction. Um, so what I want to talk about now um, is um, uh, some ideas that I've been thinking of in um, decision theory um, and um, some more details about the evolution of cooperation. Um, so what I want to say is that um, there that I won't be able to talk about all of these, but I'm partly saying this so that if you want to talk about this in, in question and answer, we should. Um, that um, decision theoretical um, approaches to the evolution of cooperation um, can help you solve some major questions um, in the way fiction works, um, or, can, or um, can also help show how a lot of these major questions are surprisingly related to each other. So one major question is the central fictional issue of mediated desire. Um, some of you will know that term from Girard, from Rene Girard. Um, and the simplest way of putting that term is um, Girard is interested in the fact that people seem to love, um, feel desire for um, figures whom other people feel desire for. The desire is mediated. So the attractive sons argument that I laid out a little while ago about peacocks and peahens um, is a biological um, analog and maybe even explanation for the structure of mediated desire. 
Um, but the question that I think should be a question for anyone trying to think about how fiction works is something like this. Why, if I go see an Astaire and Rogers movie and I become besotted with Ginger Rogers, um, do I want Fred Astaire to get her? rather than me. Um, why do I want, if I become besotted with Cary Grant, do I want Ingrid Bergman to get him rather than me? Um, and the standard answer, which I think isn't an answer at all, but is just verbiage, is that somehow ident I identify with the other character. Um, and, I, and I, me, the real me, have no idea what that would mean to say that I identify um, with Fred Astaire and think, yes, somehow Fred Astaire getting Ginger Rogers is like me getting Ginger Rogers. It's not. It just isn't. Um, so why, um, do, why do happy endings in fiction um, work through a mechanism of mediated desire? Um, how could mediated desire um, develop and how could it develop in this way? Um, a second question is the question of authorial authority which is um, why do, if I'm reading or seeing a fiction and I know it's not true, why is the author's ending privileged? That is to say, um, why can't I decide that I'm not going to read the last couple of volumes of Harry Potter and Dumbledore in my version of Harry Potter will be just fine? Um, why can't I make that decision since it's all fiction? Why does the author get to decide rather than me? Why don't fan fiction websites, which give me better endings, why don't they be what, why, why can't I choose them rather than what J.K. Rowling says? So that's another um, puzzle about fiction and our emotional involvement in fiction. A third puzzle, again, I want to say all these are related, um, goes under the name of, um, um, or I, I want to try to think about in terms of hyperbolic discounting. Um, and that's something I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but the question is, so why if I go see Romeo and Juliet and the two hours traffic of the stage, as the, as, um, the um, chorus figure in Romeo and Juliet, puts it, um, is so sad and tragic and I'm weeping and crying when it's over, why do I go see such a play and why um, after this emotional um, um, despair or, or raw upness that I feel, um, do I then go out to dinner afterwards? Um, why doesn't it last? What, how can I get so sad so quickly um, and then get over being so sad so quickly as well, and why can I expect that this will happen? Um, Aristotle's answer, um, again, is just a way of um, focusing on the question, which is somehow there's catharsis, and I leave um, being purged of these emotions, and I feel um, better and purer somehow. Um, but that, again, that I think that's true of great tragedies, that one does have that, that experience. Um, but it's really not an experience that lasts very long, that experience of purgation. It probably did last long when tragedy was, was closer to religious ritual, but that doesn't matter. The question is why even now can I feel so emotionally devastated and yet over that emotional devastation a couple of hours later? And why do I pay for emotional devastation, um, which I then get over a couple of hours later? Um, Another question which I want to claim is related, and um, I've just actually given you an example of it, um, is the structure of spoilers. 
Um, why is it so bad um, if you've already seen the movie to tell someone what's going to happen? Um, I am wearing, for today, a spoilers t-shirt. And what this t-shirt does, but don't look too closely if you don't want to know, it's a, it's a sort of proudly antisocial t-shirt. And what it tells you are the spoilers for a bunch of very famous um, movies. So I'll just tell you one of them is Rosebud is a Sled, but I assume you know that. Um, but it's, um, it's a list of things. Um, so I can take a commission if you want to buy some. Um, but what's, what's funny about the t-shirt um, is what's interesting about spoilers, which is if you go to a movie with someone um, and you haven't seen the movie before and you don't know how it comes out, it's perfectly fine for you to say, oh, wait a second, I'll bet he never closed the window and that he's actually the um, criminal. And um, the person you're with might say, no, that can't be true. Um, and if it is true, you'll be gratified when it does turn out to be true. Or they might say, oh my god, you're right. And then you'll be gratified at that very moment. Um, but that structure of being going to a movie with someone else and guessing at the surprise before the surprise is given to you, um, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine social behavior. But what feels like or should be the identical structure of See where it looks like he's closing the, the window? Well, see, I saw the movie before, and he's not really. Um, <laughs> is not fine. Um, and it's interesting, um, and um, I think I know why it happens, but it's interesting that we have different attitudes towards um, our friends who guess what's going to happen and our friends who know what's going to happen. Um, a guess is fine. Knowledge isn't. Um, the same is true if you think of, of the social um, situation of, of telling jokes or riddles. So if someone tells you a joke that you already know, it's really bad manners to step on the punchline. But if they're telling you a joke that you don't know, it's fine to guess the punchline. Um, and in one case, there's a kind of fair competition, you could say, going on between the joke teller and the audience. And in another case, the, the competition is unfair because the audience already knows the answer. But why is one felt to be fair is a question. Since the joke teller knows the answer, since the author knows the answer, why is it fair for them to know the answer and not for you to know it? Um, and of course, there are situations where if you don't like the person, you'll say, yeah, yeah, I know, because it was stapled to the punk rock star, because it was stapled to the chicken, whatever. Um, but that's a dismissive response to a joke. Um, it puts the joke teller in an awkward situation. Um, I think spoilers and knowing what the spoiler is as opposed to guessing what the outcome is um, is a similar social situation. And then the final um, thing that I think um, is standard in fiction and that I actually want to talk about um, a little bit now and then I want to show you these clips, but um, the final thing is a kind of situation that we um, frequently engage in in suspenseful and emotionally powerful works of fiction, which is a sort of bargaining with the author. And by bargaining with the author, what I mean is something like um, there's a loaded gun of some sort, and there are a bunch of children in this story. And the children are left alone in the house with the loaded gun. Um, and anyone with any confidence in fiction, which is to say any human being, knows that the gun is going to go off, 
and knows that a child is going to be hurt. Um, and the kind of bargaining that you will do if, you, if you're um, engrossed in the story is something like saying, okay, obviously someone's going to get hurt. That's okay as long as no one gets killed. Um, but then you may be able to tell that, no, someone is going to get killed. Um, and then the bargaining may be, well, okay, it's all right if the babysitter gets killed, but not <laughs> if the little girl gets killed. Um, and that kind of anticipatory bargaining where the only threat you really have is, author, I will be really angry at you if you kill this child, um, is also giving the author a way out. Look, you've already said you're going to kill someone. That's obvious. Um, but if you kill the babysitter and save the child, I will forgive you for what you're doing. So that experience, which obviously I'm caricaturing a little, but I think only a little bit here, um, that experience of reading an engrossing fiction, um, where you're kind of bargaining with something that is already written down or a story that has already been invented, even in oral cultures, um, uh, or a movie that's already been filmed, where nevertheless you feel a kind of um, magical thinking about how this story will unfold, I think that's a feature of a lot of our experience of plot and of fiction. Um, and it's what makes it emotionally absorbing and um, what makes anxiety, um, or it's another way of describing anxiety that we have about fictional stories. Why, why should we feel anxious about what's going to happen to Pip um, and, and um, whether he will end up with Estelle or not? Um, it's all there in the book. You can turn to the last page and find out. Plus, it happened or didn't happen 160 years ago. Um, and yet, nevertheless, we're um, thinking about it as though um, our own magical desire could change the outcome or could affect the outcome. Um, and I think that's a cru that's not. It is an illusion, obviously, but I think it's an important illusion, not only about how we experience fiction, um, but about how we experience each other and how um, the evolution of cooperation works. So I think the ideas that I'm going to just put forward a little bit today um, are ideas which show relations and affiliations between those five questions. Um, so the what I want to describe um, right now is a version of Prisoner's Dilemma, um, which is called Newcomb's Problem. And I guess I want to ask how many people know what Newcomb's Problem is? Um, OK, so what I'll do is I'll just talk about Newcomb's Problem, and, and then I'll show you these clips, and then uh, we can discuss what, whatever um, we discuss. Do people know what Prisoner's Dilemma is? Um, how many people don't? Um, all right, Newcomb's Problem, I think, is, is, is just fine and vivid um, and um, really uh, gives us what we need um, to what we need for more general prisoners' dilemma situations. So Newcomb's problem is this: um, there's a Martian um, who is extraordinarily good at reading human psychology, um, and what she can do is look at a person and figure out um, by purely psychological means. Um, the kind of person that person is in the following situation. So the situation is um, that she, the Martian, is going to um, put an opaque box, which either contains a million dollars or nothing, 
in it, um, at the edge of, um, of a cliff. And next to that opaque box, which either has a million dollars or nothing, um, she is going to put a clear box, um, which has $10,000 in it. Um, and she, is, she goes up to the person selected, um, whom she has read very well, and what she says is what I've just told you, um, that at the edge of the cliff there are these two boxes. The person she goes to is told, you have a choice. You go to the edge of that cliff and you have a choice. You can push the $10,000 over the cliff and just take the opaque box. And if I think you will do that, I will put a million dollars in the opaque box. <laughs> or you can take both boxes, the opaque and the $10,000. So you can take both or one. And if I think that you will only, if I think you will take both boxes, then I will leave the opaque box empty. And I sized you up, and I'm sizing you up now as I'm telling you this, and I have come to the conclusion, or to a conclusion about what you will do when you get to the edge of the cliff. Um, I'm not telling you that conclusion. However, she then truthfully goes on, I've done this 10,000 times already, and I've never been wrong. Um, so every time someone has taken both boxes, they've only gotten $10,000, and the opaque box has been empty. Every time someone has trusted my judgment and only taken the opaque box, their trust in me has been vindicated, and the opaque box has contained a million dollars. Um, here's the edge of the cliff. I'm off to Mars. I'm not even going to watch. Um, I'll be informed later. Um, so she has no magical power over what's in the boxes. And, you, and the person, you, um, are left before these boxes. Um, so the question is now, what do you do? Um, nothing you do will change what's in the opaque box. Um, nothing you do can have any effect on what's in the opaque box. It can only have a kind of magical effect backwards. That is, that you can somehow magically believe that if you trust her now, your trust will somehow propagate backwards in time to make it the case that she's put um, the million dollars in the opaque box, so you throw the $10,000 down the cliff. Or you might think, I really, 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 really want that million dollars, um, and um, I really want to be the kind of person who will um, take the million dollars, who will get the million dollars because she will think that I'm that kind of person. On the other hand, I really need $10,000. Um, and if I were to open the opaque box after getting rid of the $10,000 and it were empty, boy, would I be upset. And if I were to um, take both, and if I were to take simply the opaque box, or if I took both boxes and got the $10,000, boy, would I feel vindicated at not throwing the $10,000 down. So the question is, what do you do in that situation? And um, there's a way that when people think about Newcomb's problem, and you can, it's fun to think about, um, and strangely fun to think about, um, what people tend to do is they tend to think, I would really, 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 really only take the opaque box. And you think about that as hard as you possibly can to convince yourself that you would only take the opaque box. 
because if you can, in a kind of method acting, become a person who would only take the opaque box, and, and which means that you would start off as a person that she would anticipate would become a person who would only take the opaque box. If you can really get yourself into that space where you would only take the opaque box, then a split second before you took those boxes, you might still be committed to only taking the opaque box. And then you would say, so it's got a million dollars in it. Great, and take both. Um, or not. So Newcomb's problem, basically people split 50-50 as to what they would do. Luckily, it's only a thought experiment. Um, and we don't know what people would do in real life. Um, but the real life version of Newcomb's problem is a prisoner's dilemma. Um, so I'm going to show you easy and, and, and um, easy and fun set of clips from a game show, um, which is based more or less on prisoner's dilemma. Um, but the um, idea, again, is um, to what extent can you think of yourself in such a way that you influence through your own self-perception how another person would act. Um, the name of this is evidential decision theory. And the idea is that you take yourself as evidence for how someone else would act. You can't cause them to act in a certain way, but you can judge whether they will act in that way or not by looking at whether you would act in the way you want them to act, knowing that they're in a similar situation. And therefore, it's not only that you read, that you take yourself as evidence by looking at yourself and saying, so what would I do? But you're allowed to decide, make yourself a kind of person who would cooperate in order to give yourself evidence that someone else would cooperate. So how, so you exercise your own willpower towards cooperation in a kind of body English where the harder you try to convince yourself that you would cooperate, the more you're convincing yourself that the other person is also trying to convince themselves that they would cooperate. And by thinking, and th th I think this will be clear when we see these clips, but by thinking really hard about what you would do, it's as though you're trying to influence what they would do. And as though introspection is itself a kind of narrative relationship to other people. You're not presenting yourself to them as narrative, but you're understanding them in narrative terms by introspecting into your own mind in narrative terms. Okay, so what I'm about to show, I hope, if this all works, um, I want to get to iMovie download. What I'm about to show are, cl are several clips from um, a game show, actually two game shows, which are the same. One was an American game show called Friend or Foe. Um, and it was really badly done, but the Brits picked it up and did a better version of it called Golden Balls. And it'll be clear to you um, from the start um, what the climactic scenes in the, in the show is. And I'll make a couple of comments on these clips as we go, but, that, but that's basically what we'll end with. Um, so what I want to do is view, right? 
Um, okay, what I want is... Can we get in a ladder? Yes. Um. I know you're the last two people in the country I have to explain this to. But you have two of your fine life changing money. You each have a golden ball with the word. Is this the light? You each have a golden ball with the word. You will make a one choice, final decision to choosing. Oh, wait, what did I do wrong? We're now going to play. Sorry, we have to. If you both choose the split ball, you split today's jackpot of a hundred thousand. I'm sorry, this is technically a nightmare. With fifty thousand and seventy-five thousand. If one of you splits and one of you steals, whoever chooses the steal ball will go home. With okay. Ah. I'm going to try this a different way. <laughs> it's postmodern. Okay, we'll start. Okay, you probably didn't get all that. Basically, the two, these two people, there's, a, there's money in a pot, and um, each person is going to declare whether they're willing to split or to steal the money. Um, and if they both cooperate, they will split the money. Um, he's about to explain it again. But, so these are the two players, um, and they will either split or, um, or not the money. Um, and the possible outcomes are... No money for either. If they both try to steal. If they both try to steal, no money for either. If, um, they both, if they both split, each gets half. If one splits and one steals, the stealer gets it all. <laughs> Life-changing money. Your jackpot today is 100,000. Final decision to make. We're now going to play split or steal. <laughs> I know you're the last two people in the country I have to explain this to, but you have two final golden balls. You each have a golden ball with the word split written inside. You each have a golden ball with the word steal written inside. You will make a conscious choice of choosing the split or the steel ball. If you both choose the split ball, you split today's jackpot of £100,150 and you go home with £50,075. If one of you splits and one of you steals, whoever chooses the steel ball will go home with £100,150 and the person chooses the split ball, goes home with nothing. If you both choose the steel ball, you go home with nothing. Okay. Before I ask you to choose, I want you to look at your two golden balls and make sure you know which is the split ball and which is the steel ball. This is very important. Make sure you don't show each other. 
before I ask you to choose, I think you have some talking to do to each other. Stephen, I just talked and there were puppy dog tears and there were real oh. tears and you were genuinely going to split that. I am going to split this. I, I, I just, 50,000, um, I'm just, um, it's unbelievable. I'm very, very happy to go on with 50,000. <laughs> if I stole off you, every single person there would run over here and lynch me. There's no way. I mean, everyone who knew me would just be disgusted if I stole. When, when people watch this, they're not going to believe it. Please. I can look you in the, sir, I can look you straight in the eye and tell you I, I'm the going to split. I swear down to you. Okay. It is. All right, any bets? <laughs> Okay, what, the first thing I just want to draw your attention to is that, it's, um, is that the audience matters, and they're talking about the audience mattering. So it's not only a prisoner's dilemma between the two of them. There's also the game show host, and there's also the audience watching them, which they're aware of, and they're also, um, interestingly, an audience for each other. So, any bets? Okay, let's... He's a dirty let's, dog. He's a dirty dog. Okay. Anyone want to bet against me? <laughs> as to what's going to happen. <laughs> See, this is the bargaining part. Okay, ready? I, sh I should tell you, if you go to YouTube, you can find these. And there's one where um, the we're, we're going to see a crap video in a second, but in one of the ones that I'm not doing, there are two people from Liverpool who are filming their TV with the iPhone or with their, with their cell phone, and they're filming the climactic moment. And you can hear them saying, Oh my God, she's going to cheat! No, don't listen. Um, so it's it's great to hear the the TV audience too. Okay, let's go Sarah, on. Sarah, Steve, choose either the split or the steel ball now. Hold it up. We're going on with fifty grand each. I promise you that. Split or steel. <laughs> you never know what's coming in this game. Congratulations, Sarah. You have just won one hundred thousand one hundred thousand. Stephen, I'm so sorry. Commiserations and loss. Okay. So, an unfamiliar feeling for one of you, but a Horribly familiar feeling for the other. This has been Golden Balls until next time. Good luck. <laughs> now, hang on. Keep watching. Golden Balls taught me that some people look for revenge quite easily, and greed obviously knows no bounds. As soon as the other split ball, I wasn't proud. I didn't feel happy about what I'd done, but having been stabbed in the back last time, I just couldn't put myself through it again. <laughs> Okay, so a quick thing that I want to say about this, we're going to look at a couple more clips. I hope you found that interesting. Um, a quick thing that I want to say about it um, is that um, the explanation afterwards for what they're doing, they, they anticipate what they're going to do. Um, they, they either truthfully or untruthfully say what, they, what they're going to do. Um, and then afterwards they do explain. Her explanation here is interesting. Um, because what she's saying is the reason I did it was not to be cheated. In other words, she's saying I didn't do it out of greed for myself, but out of a desire 
not to let someone cheat me. So I just want to say a general question in, in fiction um, rides on the difference between vindication and vindictiveness. Um, and vindictiveness is when you take revenge on someone who, like Satan in Paradise Lost, on someone who is not um, defected, um, just because you think they might. Um, whereas vindication is when it turns out that you were right in your guess as to their character. Um, and so, uh, so Golden Balls and the other show, Friend or Foe, that we're going to see a clip from next, um, are really are interesting um, on the way people will sometimes describe what they're doing as vindication um, when everyone else will describe it as vindictiveness. Um, okay, so here's the second clip in just a second. This is from the original show that Golden Balls is based on. It's called Friend or Foe, and the production values are a lot lower. Lisa Marie and Jamie, welcome to this trust box. Isn't it pretty? Yeah, thank you. I made it myself. Inside the trust box, you each have a button which you will use to indicate friend or foe. This decision will determine how your massive trust fund is divided. If you both choose friend, you'll split your earnings, each getting $500. That'd be a very nice pair of shoes, maybe a couple. But if one of you chooses friend and the other breaks trust by choosing foe, foe takes the entire $1,000, friend gets nothing. If each of you selects foe, then neither of you gets the money. You both leave empty-handed. So let's talk about how you guys chose one another backstage. You both picked each other. Did you make the right move selecting Jamie? I made the right move. We, I think we worked well together. I mean, we both, we should, there was one question we both kind of knew we should have. We didn't hit quite, you know, and then on the card one, you know, I got the 11. We were thinking I was going on faith. It happened. We should have got a little faster on the, the last one. I, I should have trusted your intuition there, but I think we kind of worked Okay, so listen to what she says. So they both defected. Well, at least she wasn't the one that walked off with it all. What can I say? I feel much better. I can sleep tonight. Two teams remain while the remaining teammates. Okay, so the idea there is um, they both defected, but at least Lisa Marie on our right um, has essentially post facto justified her defection by saying she's punished Jamie for her defection. Um, so they've both done the same thing, but Lisa Marie is thinking of herself as um, that's an okay outcome because she prevented the other person from cheating her. Um, so they both cheated, but one cheater gets to think of um, herself because she's the one who's asked as punishing the other cheater. Okay, here's another Golden Balls one. Um, again, this one is interesting. Well, they're all interesting, that's why they're here. Oh, 
Thank you. I wanted to get through so much, which is why I did what I had to do. But don't let that silly judgment. It hasn't, James. I'm really sure I should just tell you that to get to the, there are four players who play initially, as you'll see in the last clips. Um, to get there, two of the players have to um, be excluded. It's a little bit like Survivor. They get voted off, and there's bluffing and, and cheating in the voting off as well. Um, that is, people claim to have um, cards, as it were, money values that they can bring to the table at the end that they may, truth, they may be lying about, they may be telling the truth about. So there's some history between these people, 20 minutes of history between these people when they do the final decision. And that's what she's just been talking about. Well, I did some questionable things, but um, now here we are, and of course they're both going to say, and we're going to be honest. Reading you wrong, that's my worry. Yeah, I'm reading not, you wrong. Um, because I, I've gone on instinct. Yes, I mean, I must have it last time, I really want to show him to trust. But I So, see, this is the, did you intend to do it from the start? No, <laughs> I didn't. So this is the person who intends to take only the opaque box, but at the last second takes both. Um, but, but, yeah. So her parents, <laughs> do I have to sit and listen to this? And then she just walks off. She can't stand the way she's just been cheated on. Um, and it's, it's amazing that that's happening on national TV. 7,210 pounds. Beverly, commiserations, you're going home again with nothing. Did you see that one coming? <laughs> well, I certainly didn't. What will happen next time? We'll find out here on Golden Ball. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you that sorry, you wouldn't have done it. I'm sorry, that money. I feel absolutely sorry, but I'm shaken. I feel sick. 
So the winner feels dreadful, and the loser feels, um, and I think she does. Um, and the loser feels angry, but not dreadful. Um, and I think that, so I just want to say, this is, uh, this is um, indecision theory. Um, there's something called ratificationism, which is the idea that um, if you think of Newcomb's problem, I want to show one more, one more um, clip, and it's really worth it. I, I know you're looking at your watch. But does anybody it. ever say, I'm going to do steel because I don't care about getting Just, money, I don't want to make it. Well, that's what, I yeah, I, th I thought of that as a strategy, and I can tell you, I can give you more details about what I would do. Um, but the, um, the interesting question in Newcomb's problem, the interesting question here is, if you were to, um, a question you can ask in Newcomb's um, problem is, um, will you be happy with your choice, assuming that the Martian is right about you the way she's been about everyone else? That is, if you take only one box and it has a million dollars in it, will you say to yourself, yes, thank goodness I only took one box? Or will you say, but it had a million dollars, why didn't I also take that other 10,000? If you take only, if you take both boxes and it only has $10,000 in it, Will you say, I made the right choice? Or will you say, oh, if only I pushed that off, this box would, would probably have a million in it. Everyone feels glad, we think, um, with their own decision if it turns out to be right. And yet, um, what rationalists expect is a better outcome than any outcome that's been had before. So one, well, I'll just say one question about Newcomb's problem is whether you feel that your choice has been ratified or not, whether you would ratify your own choice after you've made it. Um, here, neither of these people, the, the winner does not ratify her choice even though she wins, and the loser does ratify her choice even though she loses bigger than she otherwise would have because she also has the bitterness of the winner's winning. Okay, this is a little bit longer. I'm showing you a little bit of the middle of the story with three people in it. And um, it's the middle person, um, him, who's really interesting. So he has two killer balls. And what, that, what the killer balls do, just so you know why this is not a good position to be in, is they reduce the final jackpot. So if you show killer balls, two of them, you're very likely to be voted out unless someone else is also showing two killer balls. And that's the situation that we're in. He's showing two killer balls. This is a very bad position for him. 300, something like that. So on paper, uh, I'm sorry, mate. I can only uh, tell you what I've got, and you can make a decision. Well, it's totally understandable. Two killers, we can go through two killers with an amazing amount of money. I'm sorry, let's get rid of those two killers. You've got to be lying, Scott. Yeah. 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 If you were honest, then you might have a chance. Listen, but you're, you're, you're rubbish. Huh? They're rubbish. They're two killers and they're low amounts. They're rubbish. No. So he's basically saying, vote me off. He's saying, I have two killer balls, and I have nothing hidden that compensates for that. Um, and everyone is laughing because they've never seen anyone confess. Um, to not having a good hand because they're going to be voted off because they don't have a good hand. So the fact that he's doing that, that he's saying, I have these two killers and I have rubbish balls in the back and there's no point in playing with me, is causing everyone in the game surprise. So let's go on. So, bad enough to the first round, I don't want to do the same thing again. I'm sorry, but, uh, if, if I thought I could play the 
I don't trust one of you cards and both me because I'm trustworthy. Because I would spit and fine about it, I honestly would. But I, don't, I would Wait, know. But I, I, I think it's percent and that's guaranteed. I want me from here. Like, it's I'm stuck an honest person and I really do want to split. I am stuck in the final. You'll see that and see if I'm, see if I'm going to be alive. So, this favour, guys, um, I would split in the final round. I'm not going to be there, so please both split. <laughs> Why should they keep you in, Fred? Because all the balls I've got have been honest from the start. You've got the new cash amount on the front, there's 20,000 right across there. It'd be a fool not to ball. Why in. should they keep you in, Leah? I took 30 grand through the last round. I'm taking nearly 40 grand. I haven't lied, I've played an honest game. Exactly what I've done when I come here. <laughs> you can have one final set. The only thing I can say is I think you both know that I would split in the final round. That's the only thing I could bring to the table, I'm afraid. Great. It's a very original round of golden balls. Thank you, Scott. However, it's up to the three of you to decide who is leaving and who's staying. You've got one vote each. You need to use it. here on Golden Balls, and it's been a bit like the history of Scott of the Antarctic. We've seen a very noble gesture, and someone's going out soon, and I think they may be gone for some time. Welcome <laughs> back to Golden Balls, our three remaining players have made their decision. One of them now has to lead the game and see their balls binned. Before the break, it was extraordinary. Fred has £20,000 on his front row. Leanne has claimed £20,000 on her back row. And Scott, in a golden ball's first, has held his hands up and claimed an absolute bag of rubbish. <laughs> and he's urged the other two to vote him out. Anything could happen now, but it won't. The first vote is for... Scott. The second vote is for... Scott! <laughs> Could this be a first? Could we have three votes for Scott? The third and final vote is for... Leanne! So, what do you think we're going to do? Split or steal? What can I say? Just show us what you've got in here. 60 pounds. Let's have a look. Let's get on. Oh, sorry. 60 pounds. Yeah. 60 pounds. 175. Yeah. And 300. Big money, guys. You're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, where's your killer? Right on you. Have a look at this. 40 pounds. Right the center. Yeah. Earlier, he'd said he had that. And 1,500. There's no surprise. 600. <laughs> 10,000 and 20,000. <laughs> Been an interesting final. Scott, what a remarkable man you are. 
Um, but it's been great having you on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. You can start again. Um, you need to beat your ball before sure. you go. Thank yeah. you very much indeed. And uh, we wish you all success with your financial advising and developing. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, would, you, would you split? Oh, 100% I would split. 100% split. 100% split. Well, I think you guys will as well. So. Okay. Right. okay. You've been your balls and you're out of the game. Thanks, Thanks for playing. Thanks, Thanks very much. Um, so he's the hero. Clear? Yeah. So this is the finals. Check your two golden balls now. Be very careful. Don't show each other. Make sure you know which they are. You know which is which, Fiona? Fred, you happy? All right. Before I ask you to choose, I'd always give you a little bit of time to discuss today's events and how you want to progress. All day long. Yeah. So I said I'm going to cry. <laughs> I said I'm going to stay out of the person. You've seen that all along. Oh, I just cry. want to trust you. Right? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I'll split. I'll Please split don't let me down. I'll let you down. You know, so I'm going to cry. <laughs> nothing worse than being greedy in life. No. Trust me. And if that's the way you want to end up, trust me. If that's the way you want to end up, being greedy on tally, then fine. But I'm telling you now. Please don't. Been honest from the start. Split. Please. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you now to choose either your split or steel ball. Now, and hold it in. So notice that he says you don't want to be greedy on telly. <laughs> um, so it's the it's the again the audience is really mattering to the um, urging of trustworthiness here. Now before you open it. I'm going to ask you a very important question. Are you both happy with your choices? 100%. 100%. 100%? Yeah? I'm going to count to three, and then I want you to reveal whether you have chosen your split or your steel Ready? Three, two, one. So that's all I got. <laughs> Not really, but um, what do you think? How many people think they'll split? Both steel. Okay, so one person for both splits. How many people think both steel? A majority thinks both steel. And how many people think a split and a steel? And do you have views on which way? The woman will steal. Do you think so too? Okay. Um, and then again, the question: when you when you see what is about to happen. Um, again, the thing to notice is whether and how um, they feel about the decision they've made. Um, that's the ratification question. Okay. I wanted to give you a happy ending. <laughs>
My message for coming on Golden Balls is there is always someone you can trust. Find that person and enjoy yourself. So I think that if Scott hadn't been there, it's not nearly as, as um, obvious that they would have split. That is, I think that what happened was his example of gallantry, um, which was his only chance. I mean, we can be cynical about it and say it, it was his only chance to stay in the game. But still, um, that gallantry, it was really feel-good gallantry. And I think there was something contagious about that feel-good gallantry there. Um, but the interesting fact, whether that's true or not, is that you might, if you were a purely rational maximizer of your own, um, of your own um, outcomes, either of them might have been disappointed that the other one split. That is, either one, that they split. Either one might have said, but if I'd stolen, I would have gotten it all. Um, and yet, the amount of good feeling that you get when you get a successful cooperative moment um, where each does something which isn't, um, as they say in game theory, the dominating strategy. Um, and it works out even though it could have worked out better. But they don't care that it could have worked out better. They're happy with the way it worked out. Um, that's an example of the kinds of emotional incentives to um, thinking about what you would do in order to get someone else to behave decently also, making yourself decent in order to try um, through a kind of magical body English to get someone else to be decent. That's how cooperation um, solves prisoners' dilemmas. And I think just the narrative interest of watching this, or the interest of this as theater, um, is very similar to the kind of interest that we take um, in that place where narrative and game and sports and rooting um, overlap with each other. Um, so that's, the, that's, that's a, um, an introduction to what I'm thinking about now. That's my lay hand. Thank you. Do you want to take it? It's 5 o'clock, but if anybody... What's the stuff from Anthony and Cleopatra? Um, so the stuff from Anthony and Cleopatra is the scene between um, uh, Cleopatra's women and the soothsayers. And what the soothsayers keep asking, I mean, excuse me, what, what Cleopatra's women keep asking um, is for um, an immediate pleasure, um, even if that immediate pleasure is paid for by um, a serious loss later on. Um, it's a wonderful scene, um, but uh, an example of that is um, uh, an example of... of um, non-reasonable um, um, valuation is um, a moment um, uh, when the soothsayer says to Charmian, you shall outlive the lady whom you serve, to which Char Charmian responds, oh, excellent. I love long life better than figs. Um, and there's an obscene joke there in the, in the word figs, but it's actually the non-obscene reading, the surface reading is better. Um, than the obscene reading because it's the, the absolute disconnect between the value of figs and long life. And yet the fact that she's weighing them is more or less equal. Do I pick long life? Do I pick figs? Um, Tarrytown commercials used to be like that. Us Tarrytown smokers would rather fight than quit, which is essentially I love Tarrytown cigarettes better than long, or switch, yeah. Um, but it meant quit. Um, I love cigarettes better than, than long life. Um, but it's the idea that you would weigh an immediate pleasure 
you would, um, you would so discount a distant pleasure um, in a kind of bargaining that you do with pleasure and incentive to weigh the immediate pleasure in um, golden balls of gallantry or of splitting against the longer-term pleasure of getting 11,000 pounds or of still being in the finals and having a chance for 11,000 pounds. Um, that Shakespeare, I think, is thinking of as something that theater uses, a human propensity um, to, to weigh very near-term pleasures as much, much greater um, than long-distance pleasures beyond what any utilitarian theory of value can explain. Um, this is called hyperbolic discounting. Um, an example of that is if, if you offer students, which I don't because I can't afford to, but economists do, if you offer um, students um, $100 today or $120 10 days from now, they'll all take the immediate $100. Um, if you offer students $100 um, 50 weeks from now or $120 52 weeks from now, they'll take the hundred, I mean the $110 52 weeks from now, they will do the rational thing and wait another two weeks for the extra $10. Um, but those are inconsistent preferences. Um, $100, um, because in 50 weeks, it's going to reduce to the current situation, and yet they don't care about the fact that it will reduce to the current situation. So that's called hyperbolic discounting, and um, it's hyperbolic discounting goes against ratification. Um, it's a choice that, is, that everyone makes, um, or most people make, um, in most facets of human life that goes against maximizing your own advantage. Um, and I think that um, narrative and the evolution of cooperation defeat ratification, um, and I, which is an interesting thing. But the other example, the end of that scene, the reason I think Shakespeare is thinking about this um, in this scene and in general, I think it's also um, the subject of Sonnet 73, um, but Charmian's last desire, are, um, Alexis, come, his fortune, his fortune. Oh, let him marry a woman that cannot go, sweet Isis, I beseech thee, and let her die too, and give him a worse, and let worst follow worst, till the worst of all follow him, laughing to his grave, fiftyfold a cuckold. Good Isis, hear me this prayer, though thou deny me a matter of more weight. Good Isis, I beseech thee. So she's willing to um, have Isis say no to something that matters just to make a cuckold of Alexis. Um, and, and Iris agrees, and Alexis notes this. Lo now, if it lay in their hands to make me a cuckold, they would make themselves whores, but they'd do it. So the pleasure of, um, in a way, an immediate win um, in a kind of um, um, game which is similar to a punishment game. This isn't obviously punishment, but it is insult. The pleasure of an immediate win outweighs the losses um, that are required to get that win. And I think that that's a fact about human nature, and it's what stabilizes cooperation. I think it's a fact that literature particularly concentrates on. That's the very short-term emotional experience of literature, is the immediate pleasure um, and the pleasure we take in immediate pleasure. So I have a lot more to say about it, but that's the very fast version. Um, and just wondering, I mean, this notion of, of altruistic punishment, it seems like a very conservative reading of what literature does. Um, I, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds as if literature basically enforces 
status quo. And, and I'm wondering how this notion of altruistic punishment accounts for reading against the grain or maybe not accepting what happens at the end of a novel, but accepting what's in the middle of the novel where you think it's going the way you want it to go and, and maybe rejecting the end of the novel. Um, and, and so, I, and it also seems to account only for sort of middle brow fiction, melodrama, that type of a genre and not other types. Well, I, so obviously I have a long answer to this, but the very fast answer is if I can, if I can talk at all about how melodrama works in these terms, um, I think that's doing a lot. Um, the longer version of it, or maybe another way of saying that, is um, um, I'm, what I'm trying to give an account of is what a naive response to fiction is rather than a reading against the grain response, although I think of myself as a reader against the grain. Um, but this is more a descriptive rather than prescriptive. Um, is it conservative? Um, well, it's certainly about enforcement of the status quo. That is, um, you could, you could um, transpose a lot of what I'm saying into Foucauldian language, and the, um, um, the valence of the description would sound different, but the description would be, would be fairly similar. Um, the, idea, though, is that um, what thinking about human action in terms of altruistic punishment um, or in terms of widespread propensity towards altruistic punishment and towards um, the um, admiration, um, a propensity to admire um, altruistic punishment is to find that a whole lot of what um, looks like antisocial behavior on the part of people is actually pro-social behavior seen from another angle. Um, a lot of it is perspective. And one of the costs of altruistic punishment um, is its tendency to go wrong, to look like vindictiveness rather um, than righteousness, to look like self-righteousness rather than self-sacrifice. The um, idea of altruistic punishment was originally um, described by the biological game theorists who, who first thought about it as spite. So what they were trying to do was figure out the evolutionary origins of spite, which seemed um, ridiculous that, that spite should ever evolve, and yet it was seen everywhere. So a way that I would say what, what, um, what the analysts of altruistic punishment do is they do read against the grain because what they are doing is they're defending what looks, what risks looking to most people and often does look to most people like spiteful behavior. Um, and a defense of spite is surprising. Um, but, it's, but it's just that which can lead you to um, insight, to unexpected insights. Um, as far as liking the middle of a novel and not liking the end, yeah, one of the things I didn't get a chance to talk about here, but it's precisely that kind of uh, a version of the bargaining that you do with um, the authorities who are giving you the narrative um, is essentially saying, no, you got that wrong. Um, you didn't live up to your side of the bargain. How could you possibly think it was a good thing for Pamela to marry Squire B? How could you possibly think that, 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 that it was a good thing for um, Julie to be so, so um, um, tender and self-sacrificing on her deathbed? Um, there you were writing a great novel and then you screwed it up. And there, you know, essentially what, when audiences rebel against authors, um, that rebellion 
is sometimes disappointed. That is, I trusted you and you betrayed my trust. I thought you had a better story to tell than this story. Um, and and, um, and I'm, I'm against what you've done. It's also competition and literary criticism. If you're pro-Satan, as I more or less am in Paradise Lost, um, part, of, part of that experience, which is certainly an against the grain reading, is Milton got it wrong by the time he got to book nine. Um, Milton had something in Satan, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't, he, he couldn't um, justify, he, could, he couldn't um, keep up um, his idea of Satan. And um, that's a really um, unfortunate thing that happens. But that's a way of being involved in the social situation of narrative, despite the fact that the narrative is already written um, and that you can't change it. And yet, that social situation of wanting to change it is to engage in a certain kind of, well, one of the anti-Newcomb problems people, one of the people who think that you should always take two boxes, that it's always, you should always rat on your partner because the word rat comes from rational, um, <laughs> is um, David Lewis. Um, and he says, the, the account that I'm giving, which I think is the account of fiction, he just says, that's just news management. Um, and you're not getting the truth, you're just managing the news. Um, and it's true, that's what literary interpretation is, is in a sense, reading against the grain is news management, but um, news management can eventually sort of reach Harold Bloomian heights of strong misreading, which is part of, well, the general idea, the most important idea is that there isn't a clear and um, 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 excluding distinction between cooperation and competition. Cooperation and competition have enormous overlap. And if you see that overlap, then the cooperative slash competitive relationships that fiction both describes and that it um, institutes between audiences and fictionists, to use Trollope's word, and between members of the audience, between um, various factions of the audience. The cooperative, um, simultaneously cooperative and competitive relationships that we have, where we can't compete too much by knowing the ending and showing our spoiler t-shirt, but we're allowed to cooperate and compete by guessing at the ending as though we're being helpful. Um, all of those dynamics are present in reading against the grain, accepting what the author says as um, unimpeachable, being disappointed by the author, um, thinking that we're disappointed by the author. This is, again, something Dickens does in Our Mutual Friend, um, in the postface to Our Mutual Friend, where he says, um, my readers thought I was trying to hide what I actually wanted them to see. Um, and the whole point was that they should think I was trying to hide what I, in fact, wanted them to see. Um, all of those things are, are situations of cooperative competition or competitive cooperation. Um, and I think there's just a whole lot of interesting, subtle, unexpected, unpredictable, deep and, and um, powerful phenomena um, that get illuminated by thinking in these terms. You just made me think of driving a traffic home as competitive cooperative. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you come real close to the, the paradox of the, the best altruistic punisher is the fail altruistic yes. punisher, but you don't want to... Well, that's tragedy. Paradox, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's easy, one, one of the things that fiction does is, is uh, uh, you know, most of us in real life are failed altruistic punishers, but fiction is this kind of what you... Uh, 
maybe get at in the book that fiction gives us the satisfaction of seeing yeah. a good altruistic punishment. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we're talking about Shakespeare. I mean, Henry the Sixth. I mean, which was mm -hmm. a, a, a wonderful sort of failed altruistic punisher of life. Yeah, becomes really crappy drama. Yes. <laughs> uh, do, do, I mean, does that make sense? I guess yeah, I yeah, it does. Okay, so I'm just um, but you know, but Talbot is in a sense successful <clears throat> as an altruistic punisher, but it's because of um, you know the the um, absurd price that he pays. Which includes the price of reproductive success. Right. I mean, not Sex, to sound like a jerk, but yeah. yeah. Um, but it's yeah. I would. I think the problem with altruistic punishment, um, and this is this, the biology seems to confirm this in real life, is that we want two things from altruistic punishment. We want um, a jerk to know that they're a jerk. That is, punishment aims to convert. But if it converts, then it looks like vindictiveness. And so we want a maximum of punishment with a minimum of vindictiveness. We want a person to simultaneously acknowledge and refuse to, to um, be aware of what a jerk they are. You know, think of, think of situations, well, uh, maybe this is me, but you know, you, some, some person um, cuts you off in traffic, um, or Jay walks in front of you and almost gets killed. You roll down your window and cuss them out. Um, and then they start apologizing. They t totally admit that they're wrong. Is that what you wanted? No. You wanted them to say, how dare you? I had right of way when you know that you, in fact, had right of way. But if you win, you lose in altruistic punishment. Um, and so altruistic punishment is, um, it seems the, the, the um, fMRIs seem to confirm this. Altruistic punishment is always, almost always more pleasurable in anticipation than in actuality. And that anticipation not, not the, is, is, what is what's happening in the course of the fiction, is the anticipation of altruistic punishment. Just wait till um, Edmund gets his. Just wait until um, Mr. Grimwig sees how much he's wronging Oliver in, in, in his judgments of Oliver. But then when Mr. Grimwick does see, Dickens has a really hard problem, which he solves, but a hard problem, which is making us not gloat because he's feeling remorseful. Um, in theology, there's, um, I think, and this is something I'm only, only starting to explore now, but I believe that in Catholic theology, there's a strong and sharp distinction made between remorse and repentance. And I think that distinction speaks to this, which is, Remorse is when a person um, simultaneously realizes that they're wrong, so you get the, the moment of teaching them, showing them that they're wrong, and yet, because they're feeling remorseful, and this is Satan in Book 9, and haven't actually started repenting, um, this is also in Dante. There's plenty of remorse in hell in Dante. Um, but because that remorse isn't repentance, it's still okay that they're in hell because there's still a kind of self-indulgence and remorse which shows that they're still evil and deserving the very um, um, vituperation that is, that is successfully causing them to feel remorse. So in fictions like theology and literature, there are ways of managing what feels like almost an inconsistency, which is wanting someone to feel bad, um, but wanting, but the fact that they're feeling bad not, um, not making you start regretting um, that you've made them feel bad. And that's the, that's the really hard balance, which fiction does a lot better than life. <laughs>
the contrition contrition distinction and yeah might be nice too but I mean yeah. the contrition which you never get right the sort of perfect spontaneous like repentance but you like like the idea of it okay that's so, great yeah sorry I mean no, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what was that example of cat defeating the federation? Of, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's in in both the um, st I think it's in uh, the the um, undiscovered country, and then in the most recent Star Trek, um, the J.J. Abrams one. Um, they do the, uh, they do the same thing where um, Kirk. It's not defeating the federation. It's he's tested. Um, he's given a test um, which is rigged so that he can't possibly save the, the simulated starship. Um, and, um, and then he does. And everyone is amazed that in this test um, he managed to save the starship and it turns out he's cheated. And the way he's cheated is he's reprogrammed the test before the test starts. And in the first movie um, this is, wow, Kirk is just amazing um, because he, because he he so thought outside of the box that he reprogrammed the test before he was given to it. In the second one, I think it's Spock is outraged um, that he did this, and it's part of what what yields the what begins the tension between them. And Spock eventually has to see that this was actually a, a good thing that Kirk had done rather than um, an evil thing. Um, but so so it's not that he defeats the Federation, but it's that he defeats the very terms of the test where the lesson he was supposed to learn was dealing with failure, but he doesn't learn that lesson because, because he cheats on the test. Yeah? Uh, this is coming uh, from the direction of evolutionary biology, and I just want to make sure I got it. First of all, that I understand your major thesis. Okay. I may not either. <laughs> Which is that uh, we enjoy narrative fiction. We take great pleasure in it uh, because it's an emotion that is the outgrowth or the adaptation or selection uh, uh, that, um, that favors, uh, uh, I think, what you call strong reciprocators and the phenomenon of, of altruistic punishment. Yes. So the pleasure we take in fiction is the adaptation for that selection pressure, and that's the reason we fall. And I was wondering in that context what your thoughts are about what seems to me to be an equal pleasure that people get in reading biography, uh, which is, is a literary form in which we don't have, the author doesn't have control, or at least complete control, and yet the level of pleasure in well, so yeah, I have thought about it, and um, you know, I think that if you take um, so so there are two way, there are two ways of, of um, talking about that. So one is that there's um, a kind of um, selection bias in biography, which is that biographies are written about people who are, um, in some broad sense of the word, heroic. That is, who've um, who are outliers, um, and um, who are outliers because of um, um, certain um, unexpected um, um, talents and um, ways of using those talents um, that, that they've displayed. Um, so the biography. So, but I w I'll also concede, you know, that that webcams and and sort of 
um, there's a fascination with finding boring journals in attics um, by people who's, who's, if this were fiction, there would be no interest in it, whatever. But somehow, because it's true, it's really interesting. Um, and um, I think what's going on there is, you know, there are lots of, lots of um, facts about the world that we're interested in. Um, and we're interested in experiences um, that um, are in one way or another not like ours, that we, that, you know, that it, it's food for fantasy. They're, they're just lots of things. But general interest in other human beings is the most basic um, fact that, that um, allows for and also confirms um, cooperation. And it's not obvious that we would have this general kind of low-level background but constant interest in others. That is, it's that interest in others um, that makes us alert to um, whether they're cooperators or defectors or punishers. Um, and so that's the first thing um, that any, any narrative um, tells you is that despite the fact that the events here narrated are over, they are still interesting. And that very baseline, I think completely uncontroversial fact about um, human interest in other people's pasts, um, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean, oh my god, I must know, but just, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, the fact that we have this interest in other people's pasts um, is essential um, and I think probably a difficult to evolve and essential fact about human psychology um, which I think evolved in the context of reputation scoring and, of, um, and therefore of the evolution of cooperation based on reputation scoring. Um, and I think that um, um, that fact is just explains the first step towards um, an interest in the beginning of a story. Uh, you know, let me let me tell you about what happened to um, Mo um, uh, three years ago in St. Petersburg, and you're not saying, "Oh my God, what's the jeopardy? I'm really worried about it. Will Mo, you know, be punished?" It's just like, "Oh, Mo, St. Petersburg, sure." Um, and so that's, that, that's, that's a basic and necessary element for narrative that you find in biography, that you find in the news, that you find in fiction. Um, the fiction part of the argument, um, and, the, and the part that I think fiction offers to um, an idea of, of the evolution um, of cooperation, is um, the desire um, to manage um, the difficult um, interplay of, of vindication and vindictiveness and punishment and success and failure at punishment. Um, and it sort of intensifies, brings, brings, juxtaposes and intensifies a lot of different pieces of pro-social experience, but they do fit together. Um, and they fit together for a reason. So I, does, is that? Yeah, I'm just interested in having you speak. <laughs> So did, did, did you hear what my thoughts were, or do you want me to say I more? I think so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it seems to me as though it's a somewhat separate umbrella in an adaptive sense. But I think it's a panel of the same umbrella. Um. <laughs> okay. I don't want to prolong the floor. There's another model of communally approved and validated punishment, where the object of the punishment is, is a good or admired person, ostracism. 
invented in ancient Athens. Uh, it is a way of enforcing democratic equality by taking the most outstanding charismatic leader and then casting him out, mm -hmm. uh, which works in a sense the way tragedy works often. If you take Shakespeare's Othello, where he's built into the into the into the uh, drama uh, a character, Iago, who embodies the envy that audience members might have of the charismatic, admired person, allows him to do the dirty work for the audience, and then the audience protects itself against the negative self-condemnation of allowing that to happen by sympathy. Yeah. So empathy operates in order to counteract something also that's pleasurable, seeing somebody brought down. Mm -hmm. I, I think that this is, uh, I don't know if you know the old book by Sigrid Burkhardt yeah. on Shakespeare, where he talks about tragedy is a killing poem, and it's a way of for the author and the audience to get pleasure in somebody being brought down. Mm -hmm. How do you allow that and get a social approval of that except by way of saying, well, there's sympathy extended. So yeah. I must be a good person because I sympathize with the person I wanted to see fall in the first place. Yeah. No, I, 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 think, I think that's what it is. And I, don't, I think that's, again, consistent with um, the argument that I'm making, which is, um, Admiration doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's again, there's cooperation, there's competition. And, you know, I thought a lot about Totem and Taboo when I was starting this, which is, which is um, um, uh, more or less is, is in the same ballpark, um, which is the idea of, um, of punishing the father or the hero and so on, and then feeling bad about it. Um, and there's um, the, the balance of power. Um, is a really hard one, and I think Shakespeare is writing about that all the time. That is when a, a hero becomes too charismatic, um, the threat, what had originally made that hero admired, um, now becomes a social threat. Right. Um, and part of the threat is going um, against what looks like the, um, on the surface, pro-social um, um, features of, ad of admiring the charismatic hero. Um, so if you start, you know, it's just if you think of Julius Caesar, um, and if you think of what it what it means to start um, saying, you know, th this hero is is, is um, anti-leveling, um, the um, um, way. Well, I'm going to just repeat what you said, but one way to to kind of um, manage um, a desire to be pro-social, but also a desire to be seen as pro-social. Um, is to have a split desire about the charismatic hero. So the, so the line that I think of at the end of um, Richard II is um, Bolingbroke saying of Richard, who I would maintain is a charismatic king, um, and that's his, both what's good and bad about him, um, is um, uh, I love him murdered, hate the murderer. Um, so that now that he's murdered, he can actually, it's not only that he loves the fact that he's murdered, but now he can have an unambiguous pro-social feeling about someone no longer a threat. But these are, these are hard negotiations to make. So, but I, I do, I completely agree with you. Okay, it's about 5.30, so let's thank you. Thank you. Thank you.